there's music on the stand. <laughs> they could burst out into Christ is mine forevermore at any, <laughs> at, at any point. But not as good as these guys have been smashing it out, that's for sure. And you young people are killing me with your cool lights off <laughs> and mood lighting. Just to crack out the specs over. <laughs> so, be who you are. Pardon? Be who I am. Or who I'm becoming. <laughs> Whether I like it or not. <laughs> wow. Someone's important, they've got a message. Um... <laughs> Rachel, like this is this is an exercise in torture for Rachel, because she knows we work together. We sort of have this thing like, maybe that should have stayed inside that word, which is both for me and her probably. But. Come on, I'm provoking you. Look, she's not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Ben sitting next to her very patiently, not even going. <laughs> hey, look, this morning I felt like well we. You could say we jumped on the adoption highway and we started uh, thrashing down the adoption highway, uh, highway A, and I think we, hopefully you had the sense that we stayed in one lane. So let's work with this analogy. Um, but tonight, we're staying on, you know, highway A, adoption highway, but hopefully, well not hopefully, the reality is you'll feel like we're, we'll be changing lanes. Okay, and you'll know what I'm talking about as we come to it. So just stick with me. I might not indicate <laughs> as we change lanes, because, you know, the older you get, indicators redundant. <laughs> who, who needs them? Um, so, Drew, look at this guy. <laughs> yeah, you have to follow them. I indicate, oh, okay. <laughs> but my dad, oh, no way. I have this cool car at the moment, which, you know, when you get close to the lanes as an old man's car, the car starts to shake to push you back in the lane. So it's not actually the lines, it's the car itself shakes. Um, don't have that experience um, tonight. But we're going to change lanes as we go from different kind of aspects. We're talking about um, adoption, and what comes with adoption is that you enter a family. And with any family, uh, there's realities and responsibilities. So what I want you to do now for 30 seconds uh, is think about the family you grew up in, whatever form that was, and come up with either one reality of living in the family unit that you're part of or a responsibility of living in that family and share it with the person next to you. Ready, set, go. A reality of living in your family or a responsibility.
Okay. No doubt, um, hopefully by, by the chatter, hopefully by the chatter, it's not hard to think of either a reality of living in your family or a responsibility, just the nature of being part of a family. And so it's, they would come to you quickly. Plenty of realities of living in my family, but particularly with the name Hopper, um, most people would spell it Hooper. I don't know how you do that. Like you say Hopper. And so a reality of living in my family was having a name spelled incorrectly so that now when I say my name, I say Hopper as in Grasshopper. And everyone has a little chuckle. And they still don't get it. Still do not get it. That's just one of the realities of living in my family with the name of Hopper. But it, there comes responsibilities as well, doesn't there? Uh, when, you, when you enter a family or you're part of a family. And so it is true of God's family. There's certain realities uh, that exist um, and certain responsibilities. So that's what we're going to think about tonight. Um, this morning we thought about the fact that we are children of God. Has anyone memorised the verse yet? 1 John 3, 1. Keep chipping it away over the head. Um, but we've, we've thought about the fact that we were slaves and now we're sons, children of God. We thought about the fact that uh, that was because of Christ and what he's done for us, that he was sent by God, uh, which means uh, that God's on about, and so he's for us, but what he's for us is that we're not, it's not about that he wants good people to become better, we didn't hear that, did we? Or that he wants bad people to become good people, no, that's not his primary motivation, it's that he, he wants slaves to be free and adopted. And so that's the dynamic we're talking about. And I hinted at this, but adoption then and being a child of God in Christ, clothed in him, should be the controlling force or the controlling dynamic of our lives. Every aspect of our life should be informed, shaped, and so, as I said, controlled by that reality. So the first reality of being adopted is the motivation that we have as being a child of God. And that is we have a new motivation to live. And obviously that new motivation is that we're a child of God. That should be the driving force that for anything in our life, the way we think about ourselves and the world and other people around us. Uh, the way we speak, uh, the way we act. So, let's go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We're in the first lane, motivation to live. 1 John 4, verse 19. Plain and simple verse. We love because he first loved us. So there's the motivation, isn't it? We know we are to love, just as humans, but particularly as Christians, we know we are to love. But that is love because God first loved us. The only way we have any sense of loving someone else 
is because we know how we've been loved. If we have any source to draw upon to love, it's because we know the source of love, and that is God. We're told in the Bible, God is love. So the new motivation is a motivation of love, having experienced that from the Father. I want to skate around in the Sermon on the Mount a bit now as well. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Because as you think about the Sermon on the Mount, you might think about you know, Jesus' manifesto for how to live in the kingdom. But really, and you could say that, and I've actually preached a series which is about living in the kingdom of God, but to be honest, as I thought about adoption, thanks to you guys, I would have preached that totally differently. Because as I've looked at it with fresh eyes, particularly with my help, my friend, uh, the help of my friend Joe Packer, you know, as if he's in my lounge room, but you know, he's in the book. Um, Really, that the Sermon on the Mount is about the the royal children living in the kingdom. Uh, Because uh, God's disciples, Jesus' disciples, he talks about in terms of uh, being children and talks about God in terms of being our Father. So you think of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. So the very idea of adoption or being the children of God is the basis for Christian living in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the basis for Christian living according to Jesus. So if you go to uh, Matthew 5, verse 44 to 45, and there's sort of three major principles that, where you see this. It's in terms of imitating the Father, and then glorifying the Father, and then pleasing the Father. So let's quickly just go through these. So firstly, imitating the Father... 544, it says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, who causes his Son to rise in the evil and the good and sends around the righteous and the unrighteous. Imitate the Father, your children of your Father, that you may be, that you might actually reflect who he is to the world. I think that's the sense of not become, so it sounds like a work sort of relationship, doesn't it, that you might be, but it actually might live out who you are. And then uh, 5.48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is he saying? Your father's, you're a mirror to the world of your father. Imitate, that's what he's talking about, isn't it? He's perfect, so you're to imitate that or mirror that uh, to the world around you. So that's the first uh, principle that you get there, imitating the Father. Then the second one, as I said, is glorifying the Father. Uh, verse five, verse six, chapter 5, verse six, 16. In this same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The motivation is the glory of the Father. You always want to make someone look good who you think is good, don't you? You talk about someone who you think is wonderful in a way that shows them to be wonderful, whether that be a friend, a parent, or whoever, a boss. And so it's glorifying them. So we, we display how good God is, how wonderful he is, how loving, merciful, kind he is. 
That's how we glorify you, by the way we live and speak and think. And then, pleasing the Father. Uh, 6 verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will not, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. You know, what he's saying is, don't do it to show off, to get praise from people and please them. Do it to show off to your Father. And the reward, I don't think he's talking about, you know, do this good work and then you get a, some little goodie stored up for you in heaven. I think he's talking about just the token of love, which means your father's heart swells and smi he smiles because one of his children is doing something that's so pleasing. Is that how you think about God? Do you ever think about God in terms of him? He has his face shining upon you. Clearly he does in your in his son. But as he's watching, living for him, it causes his heart to swell and his face to smile. We're to please the Father. You know, when I was uh, growing up and became a teenager and started to wanting to be a little bit more independent, um, whatever that looked like, mostly going out independently, you know, with your mates. I don't remember my dad really having kind of rules. He never really was a dad of rules. Um, and, and the dominating thing I have in my mind uh, in terms of my dad as I was sort of entering that phase of independence was a line that he used to drop on me as I was leaving. And it was a killer line. And I think it mostly achieved what he wanted it to achieve. And he would just sink me mostly. I'm glad you recognize, someone recognised that. <laughs> it was this, son, I trust you. Yeah, I trust you to be who I've raised you to be. I trust you, um, maybe, you could say, to live up to the name, my name, to represent the family in the world. There's something powerful in that, isn't it? And it's interesting, I think that Sermon on the Mount, it, it, it's hard to say that that's a rule book, because it's not. It's like the perfect parenting manual, which is concrete examples, scenarios with the, with the thread of the Father. The Father. Glorify the Father. Imitate the Father. Please the Father. As the powerful driving force and new motivation to live. A new relationship you have with God the Father as his child. You got the sense of that? Uh, I read this book a while ago, but I went back to it. It's by a woman called Elise Fitzpatrick. It's called Because He Loves Me, How Christ Transforms Our Daily Life. Uh, this lady is an exceptional Bible teacher. 
this is an excellent book. And I love how she talks about this new motivation, which is gospelized obedience. Gospelized obedience. That is, it's obedience which is driven by the gospel, not by duty or by religion. Because they're the two categories, aren't they? You're either driven by religion, which is all about duty or paying your dues or penance, something like that, um, making up for what you've done wrong or doing things to win someone's attention or favour or something. That's, that's religion and it's duty. As opposed to relationship, which is you've got relationship and so let that shape who you are and your obedience. The difference between religion and relationship. And this is what she says at one point. Every good work, if it isn't done, if it isn't done in faith, empowered by a responsive love, is simply moralistic refuse. That's one of those great sort of good writer lines, isn't it? Every good work, if it isn't done in faith, empowered by a responsive love, is simply moralistic refuse. Put on the, the, the rubbish heap. So she says, you know, how would you know if you've fallen into patterns of not obeying from the gospel or from love, or if you're obeying from religion and duty? Here's some questions. How do you respond when you fail? Do you beat yourself up over your failures? How do you respond to trials? Do you think God is punishing you for your disobedience? Do you get angry at him for not holding up his part of the bargain? Because it's about give and take, isn't it? Religion, that's what religion is. What about prayer? Do you love to spend time in your Father's presence? Or is prayer just one more duty on your checklist? Do you enjoy the fact that he enjoys spending time with you? Or do you feel guilty about your failure to pray more? Are your emotions warm towards him, especially when you gather with God's people? And are you hungry and thirsty for him? Because all those things flow out of an understanding of God as Father and a relationship you have. We have a new motivation to live. Let's change lanes. Or actually put the indicator on. The other reality we have, which does bring responsibility, is we, we have a new family. We enter into a new family. Uh, other people who are children of God as well through Christ. So if you go to 1 John 4, verse 7. 1 John 4, verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who, love, who loves has been born of God and knows God. And then down to verse 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. It's just, that's obvious, isn't it? You claim to have received the love of God, who is love. You claim to have received God. How can you claim that for yourself 
and claim to know love and then not love. Offer it to someone else. Makes complete sense, doesn't it? The mark of someone who's a child of God is that they love. And we know love is always seen, isn't it? It's, it's an action that's seen. I think it's in his great book, uh, Life Together, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, uh, says this. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian community in which we have been placed, you could say the Christian family, even where there is not great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary we only keep complaining to God that everything is paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. You're reeling against, complaining, whinging, ho-hum, about your church family, you won't keep experiencing God. That's what he's saying, in my words. And I, look, you guys are in a great church. But you know what? That's so dangerous. <laughs> I've been part of good churches before. That's so good, isn't it? The experience of you know, living in the family of God, there is nothing better than that. It's, it's, it's tangible, isn't it? And I might be overstating because maybe some of you aren't experiencing what I sense you probably are just by turning up for a weekend away, the love of God, the fellowship of God, the service of God, because you're experiencing in God's people awesome gathered worship of God's people, exciting ventures that you somehow might have the vision, the leaders, the resources, mostly, to go and affect another part of the city. That is, you know, that is living the dream. Awesome. But there may come a day where that's not all true for city life. Not as a whole, but just for you as an individual. Keep praying. Keep praying for your church. Uh, Elise Fitzpatrick talks about the idolatry of privacy and individualism, which is the greatest detriment to sanctification or growth in the church today. God has placed us in a family because we don't grow, and she says, very well in our own. And I suspect we don't grow at all on our own. Really. We become very stunted if we're Christians on our own. Individualism, isn't it? Privacy. You know, in Aussies, we're not meant to talk about politics and religion. And I suspect, um, as Christians, often we swallow that 
you know, that kind of, those lies that did appeal. We're not only private with those who don't yet know Jesus, but we're private with each other. Galatians says, 6.2, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ. If, so think about yourself right now. Could you genuinely say, not only do you know someone else's burden who's close to you, because that's one thing, isn't it? You're actually carrying it. And if you ask them, or if I ask them, they say, yes, they're, they're definitely carrying it with me. Paul says that that's what it is to be the family of God, the new family. One way it's expressed, carry each other's <coughs> burdens, bearing with each other, bearing the load of life, being helpful to each other, practically, Jesus gets down and washes feet with John. You couldn't get any more practical than that, could you? Can you think of a recent way you practically help someone? Now, look, as preachers, I think sometimes, you know, you might think I'm all expecting all negative answers. Oh, no, well, it's me. I'm not expecting that. I'm actually mostly expecting that you could say, yeah, actually... I experienced someone doing this for me the other day. That's what I'm expecting. <laughs> I'm expecting that the carry each other burden answer was, yeah, I'm in it. We're in it together. Helpfulness. You know, but the thing is, with the privacy thing, we don't share, do we, often? Often we don't share. So, so easy to have flippant conversations. In the, in the blokes session, um, Cam helpfully encouraged us, challenged us um, to before you know, we finish church or I think that's what you're talking about, wasn't it? Yeah, before on a Sunday, um, as you're having a conversation, before you end the conversation, I share a prayer point and pray with each other. And it's interesting, I, I do try and do that um, I have an agreement with a mate of mine that we, we do that, so we ask each other all the time. But the thing is, if you're in a kind of flippant conversation about nothing, if you then say, just kind of randomly changing lanes without indicating, <laughs> how can I pray for you? All of a sudden, it will become less flippant, I can guarantee you. You probably know this. And then you might be less forgetful than me, than me, but you could then pray on the spot, couldn't you? How about, how about you pray now? And one of the things I've learned from Paul Tripp so helpfully is, you know, when we come to sharing prayer points, often, and you know this, you share in your, your groups, you go around the room, and often, most often, we share about our external circumstances, don't we? And we stop there. So we, please pray about my work. Please pray about my job. Please pray about my workmate who's a real pain in the neck, maybe. Yeah, which is fine, but, but really what God's mostly concerned for is our heart response to external circumstances. So what he wants you to fess up about 
and for your brothers and sisters to help you with and pray for is what is your heart response to what's going on at work right now? What's your heart response to your workmate? There's probably no points for guessing. <laughs> Anger, frustration, whatever. Let's, let's think about that and pray for each other in those things. If, you know, if we start, if we're going, maybe start with pray for work next time. Uh, work's still going on, but yeah, let me just tell you a little bit about my, about my heart. So, because we're, we're in it together, we're, we're sharing life in Christ together. You know, dare to ask someone some help about something you're thinking about or experiencing. Yeah, one of the painful parts of being ch- part of a church that's you know really good and loving is the reality of people leaving, isn't it? And that is a reality. I mean, in my newcomers um, course at the church that I was at up in Queensland, in the back I had an appendix, which I took from another mate's church, which was how to leave a church well. Because, you know, two things. People do leave churches for all sorts of reasons, but it's really hard to do that well. And one of the, one of the reasons it's so painful because often people make decisions in isolation, which is, you know, right. But they tell you after they've made the decision, and so then they're kind of gone, which again is fine, but it's something about, oh, I thought we were kind of in this together. Maybe we could have prayed for you as you were going through that decision. So I'd encourage you in that really express what it is to be uh, in life together. Use each other for good, for support, for help, for encouragement. So we have a new family. One of the primary ways we help each other is not not just sharing things and confessing, but actually giving truth and God's word to each other. Because that's really all we've got. But but I wonder, you know, thanks for your encouragement, by the way. It's a bit overwhelming and hopefully the praise is going most all to God. Because it was God that spoke this morning. It It was his word. It was his promises. Um, but I wonder whether you've shared with someone through the day how God spoke to you or has spoken to you today so far. Uh, what was the truth that really struck you? And, and why was it so striking? If you haven't yet, why don't you turn to the person next to you? If there's one thing that struck you so far as you've been hearing God's word, share that. And if you thought about it, why do you think it did strike you? Ready, set, go.
Okay, sorry to interrupt. Uh, there's going to be more time for sharing afterwards, so hopefully that just kind of got you thinking a bit. Um, I, I was really challenged by this. Like, I, I'm um, someone who's God's wide and way that I, I tend to have, you know, pretty good mates. Um, and that's, you know, for lots of reasons. But I was really challenged by this in the last year, probably two or three years ago, uh, where a guy called Sam DeBrito died unexpectedly. Um, anyone know who Sam DeBrito was? He was, he was a Sydney um, opinion columnist, Sydney Morning Herald, sorry, a writer in Sydney Morning Herald, but writer kind of probably weekly or regular column. And he wrote, I think mostly because the paper thought he was probably representative of the average Aussie male. Um, and so it's one of those things where you find yourself reading it in, a lot of the time thinking, yeah, that's actually how I think or act. Some of the times thinking, yeah, that's how I think I act, but I wish I didn't. <laughs> so it always, he always kind of got you. But as I said, he died really unexpectedly, quite tragically. And the great thing about being a columnist is then people write eulogies which appear in the paper about you so others get to read them. And one mate wrote in about Sam DeBrito. And the way he wrote and spoke about him as a mate was just so amazingly wonderful, but at the same time challenging. And one of the things he talked about to convey the sense of mateship he had with Sam was uh, when he came home one night, very late, at 3am, after a long day and long night, and it's you know, the worst time to be thinking about life, but he was, and thinking, you know, life was a little bit pointless, you know, having one of those moments. And he was thinking then, oh, who can I talk to? And so he sort of talks about how he went through his contacts on his phone and got to different people and reasons why he couldn't call them, and then got to Sam DeBrito's name. And he had some nickname for him, I can't remember what it was. And instantly he thought, yeah, I can call him, and he called him. And he said, of course, as usual, Sam always listened. He listened, he was, wasn't judgmental, he wasn't quick to pass opinions, he just listened. And it was just him conveying he was a true friend. And I was struck by that, and I shared that with a men's group that I was a part of uh, at that point, and said, you know, do we have 3am mates? Are we 3am mates to each other? You know, that person you know that you could call at any point, at any time, for any reason. And they had a sense that they could call you. It was a great picture of, I think, well, who we're meant to be as the new family of God. So many more things to say about that, but let's, let's stop there. Two things, just to quickly finish with. Other uh, realities as um, children of God are suffering and discipline. So a couple of lanes we'll do very quickly. So suffering, Romans 8, 22 to 25. Um, let's just I'll remind you of those verses. Uh, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to some ship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope 
that is seen as no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. That's all to say we don't have everything that we've got promised right here and now. We have the first fruits, he says, verse 23. We have the spirit, but there's more to come. We're waiting for adoption as sons. We're adopted, but we're waiting for the full expression of that, the redemption of our bodies. You know, we are limited in our ability to completely please the Father while we live in this body. So our bodies will be redeemed. Verse 24, it's in this hope we were saved. We, we have a hope of something more to come. And so we wait patiently. You know, when you think about, well, I think about that, I think about the long trips, car trips up to the North Coast for holidays. You know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? It should be a constant refrain, Father, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Or, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Waiting patiently. We're groaning. We're groaning because we know we and the world is not the way it's meant to be. But one day, that pain and disease, and deformity and disability will be gone. All sin will be gone, sadness will be gone, sickness will be gone. And that's not because we'll be rid of our bodies, but we'll have mysteriously and wonderfully spiritual new bodies, hard to even imagine and grasp. Glorious bodies which are capable of, of touch, of smell, of taste, of hearing and of seeing. And so we should long for that. So that we can perfectly please the Father. And remember the reason that you're going to have these new bodies and have full satisfaction as children of God and no longer sad and prone to sin. Because you're going to be using your bodies to obey God and praise his great and wonderful name. God will be at the centre of your life fully and truly. And you'll never be unhappy, dissatisfied and sinful again. In the meantime, we suffer and we wait, which even God uses. So let's lastly think about discipline. Uh, quickly to Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 9. Hebrews 12, 5 to 9. So I know I'm hitting you with kind of a lot of information. Hopefully there's some categories there which you know exist in their slotting the information into or maybe just reminding you of uh, but Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 and you and and have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son it says my son do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, 
that you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and of peace for those who have been trained by it. Discipline, that is training or education by correction. Be clear that it's not punishment. Jesus has taken that punishment for us. It actually demonstrates that we are children of God. It proves our sonship. It proves our adoption. It shows we are heirs, verse 7. Sons. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. God doesn't want any spoiled brats in his family. So, so he disciplines us. What was, what was that? He just been cheeky. <laughs> On cue, so thanks, Graham. <laughs> you know, it's, this is we have to fight against that, don't we? Because when we suffer and have hardship, we instantly think it means God's got his back to us, or somehow we're being cast out. But that's not true. Jesus' blood is effective to purchase you for his Father and to keep you. I mean, God is in control. Verse 5, 6 and 7, God is the one acting. It's not as though you know, there's a plan A and plan B of God. It's not as though God you sees sinful people that are causing damage and then steps in to fix it up. This is what John Piper says. God's not a passive observer in our lives while sinners and Satan makes us miserable. He rules over sinners and Satan and they unwittingly and with no less fault or guilt, fulfill his wise and loving purposes of discipline in our lives. You know, it's the difference between a surgeon and an emergency room doctor. Not that I've been either, but I've experienced both. A surgeon who plans the incision for our good and the emergency room doctor who sews us up after a freak accident. God is the doctor planning our surgery, not the doctor repairing our lacerations. You might have heard of this quote, great faith is a product of great fights, great testimonies are the outcome of great tests, great triumphs only come through great trials. The front and centre qualification for Cedric and his wife, Jenny, 
They gave you a little bit of a quench, didn't they? They were broken and at the end of themselves. That's all you needed to hear. They've had a point in their life where they, were, they didn't tell you the details, but they were broken and at the end of themselves. And they reached out to God. Qualified as a church planner. Uh, think about this. When you crush lavender, you find its full fragrance. When you squeeze an orange, you extract its sweet juice. Now you think of Cedric and Jenny, they're sweet people, aren't they? As there was a fragrance about them. I'm glad they're not here, I'm only saying because they're not here. That, that's, that's because they've, they've suffered hardship and they've taken it as discipline. And how do you know they've taken it as discipline? Because they're still walking with God. They're testifying about what God did in them, what came about as a result of that. It's a famous hymn that says this, Defeat may serve as well as victory shake the soul and let the glory out when the great oak is straining in the wind the boughs drink in new beauty and the trunk sends down a deeper root on the windward side only the soul that knows the mighty grief can know the mighty rapture sorrows come to stretch out spaces in the heart for joy. I don't say that's as an academic truth. I have a real sense in this moment of my life that God is disciplining me. You've heard me say that's not punishment. That's that's training. Training for life. Circumstances in my life I've I've been not taking responsibility for. I've been pointing to sinful people, Satan at work. And at one level that's true, isn't it? What man intended for Bad, killing Jesus, God intended for good. So there's always two things going on. But at even moments of me sitting with you and me preaching to you, God, don't think God's not working on my heart. Prompting me to hear him. Prompting me to actually relent to those promptings of the spirit. Convictions of the spirit. turn towards him as my father and act in a way that pleases him. As children of God, we've got new realities, new responsibilities, new motivation to live, a new family to enjoy, 
as we wait patiently and as we experience God's training that we might be pleasing children to the Father. Can you take a moment quietly just to pray?